Father, your word contains power. We pray that your spirit would unleash it in our midst this morning, uh, performing a recreative work in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a bit of an odd time in, in history because we've never been uh, more comfortable, wealthier, more constantly entertained, and yet, it's hard to make this sort of judgment, it appears we've never been more miserable, more anxious, more willing to say, there is no purpose in life, and I want to take my life. Right? Suicide has skyrocketed 30% since 1999, and, and, and from what I understand, even in the last few years, it's, it's risen even higher. We're miserable, we're anxious for all of our, our comfort and our wealth and just the entertainment that's available to us, our souls are deeply disturbed and frayed. The band Arcade Fire uh, sings, sings about the age of anxiety. And in, the, in that, they say, it's the age of doubt, and I doubt we'll ever figure it out. Is it you or me? The age of anxiety? We fight the fever with TV? In the age when nobody sleeps? And the pills do nothing for me in the age of anxiety. We've got all of these balms that we use, but none of it works. And we're sleepless, and we're restless, and we're anxious. So the question I think that's on everybody's mind really is, is there a way to find peace in anxious times? Is there a way to find calm in the storm, joy in difficulty? And of course, the answer for the Christian is a resounding yes, that Christ is the Prince of Peace. Remember his invitation? Come to me, all who are weary, who are exhausted, who are tired, who find themselves constantly exhausted but unable to sleep themselves. Come to me. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, right? Burdened, anxious, distracted, lacking focus. Come to me, all who have a nagging sense that something's not right with your life. Come to me, and your soul will find rest. That was Jesus' invitation to us. And that's what we're after. That's what we're after, is, is the peace and the rest that Christ, our Prince of Peace, can offer. Now, we're in the book of Genesis. We've been looking at Genesis since August, uh, looking at Abraham and his family and his descendants. And so we're following this family of faith. And we're right now looking at Abraham's, focusing on Abraham's great-great-grandchildren. I'm sorry, great-great-grandchildren. Yeah. Uh, Jacob, his grandson, is now having... 12 sons, and the, the story has shifted focus to those 12 sons. And let's just think about all the pain that this family of faith is under, right? God has promised to use all of his power, all of his might, all of his love towards this family. And yet you look at the family on the ground. How are they doing? Jacob. He, I, I, Jacob believes he lost his favorite son. His son is dead. That's what Jacob believes. He's, he's, he's been under that impression for 12 years now. And if you're a parent that's lost a child, there, there's a gaping hole in Jacob's heart. There's pain in Jacob's heart because of the loss of his son. And here's the thing. He doesn't know if... He never saw the body. He doesn't... Maybe somewhere in his heart he thinks, well, I wonder if Joseph's still alive. And what's going on? He, he's riddled with, with pain. Uh, Jacob is. And then Judah, we looked at a few weeks ago, the, the, the brother uh, that really hatched the plan to sell Joseph as a slave. And Judah was living amidst the Canaanites, 
raising up what the scripture calls his, were wicked sons. Um, so he's raising these, these boys. This is what he's doing right now. Uh, this is about 15 years into his time in the land of Canaan. And then there's the brothers, the brothers who actually did the deed of selling Joseph as a slave and, and deceiving their father. And as far as we can tell, they're, they're living with their father. They're interacting with their father on a regular basis. And they're living with this deep, dark secret. You know, sin has a way of eating us, eating at our hearts. They, you know it's gnawing at them. They're having to live in, in secrecy around their father for what they did. And then, of course, there's Joseph, who was abused by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold as a slave, wound up in Egypt. God's favor lifted him up, even in Egypt, as a slave to become in charge of, of all of Potiphar's, the powerful Potiphar in Egypt, in his household. And then he's accused by Potiphar's wife of rape and thrown in prison for that. Wrongfully accused because he resisted her enticements to him. And now he's in prison. And he's been in prison for about a decade. That's how long he's been there. He's been in prison for his, uh, the decade of his 20s. Think about your 20s. A lot of stuff happens in your 20s. If you think back to your 20s, you probably, maybe you went to college. Maybe you began a career. Maybe you did grad school. Maybe you found a spouse. Maybe you started having children. Maybe you went on fun trips in your 20s. You know what Joseph's been doing? He's been sitting in a prison for this decade of his life for something he didn't do. And so there he is. But here's the thing. As we look at Joseph there in the prison... He's enduring. He's enduring. He's actually doing surprisingly well in prison. And here's the thing. This is what's, what's happening for, for Joseph. He's enduring with the word of God, the dream. He's enduring with the word. And that's, that's going to be the first point that we have this morning, enduring with the word. The second point is despairing without the word. So, enduring with the word, despairing without the word. And then I'm going to close by asking the question of you is, and that is, what word do you want? What word of God do you want? So that'll become clear what that means, what that question is asking. But enduring with the word and despairing without the word. Those are the two points this morning. Um, and so, so, so there's Joseph. He's in, the, he's in the prison. He's in this dark place. And yet, he's enduring. And what happens while he's down there, after some time, he's risen to some prominence within the prison. Again, he's, a, he's kind of imprisoned, but it's, he, he, God's favor is upon him, and that's clear. And all of a sudden, uh, the heads of Pharaoh's kitchen staff come, are thrown into the prison. They're in custody. So they haven't been sentenced yet, right? They're, it, really, what they're doing is they're awaiting their sentence. They're being held as prisoners until their sentence is given. Now, kitchen staff in the ancient world, if a king was going to be assassinated, usually the kitchen staff was your number one help in that because it oftentimes came through poisoning. And poisoning happened through the, the cupbearer or the baker or somehow we're going to trick the king and poison him. And if there was any kind of conspiracy, there was, always, there was always kind of suspicion about these people who were feeding you all the time. So the king, the pharaoh, has the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. He's put them in prison. They're in custody. And it says, verse 6 of chapter uh, 40, verse 6 says, When Joseph came to these two men in the morning, 
he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? Now, it would be very easy to assume that Joseph would just be this grizzled, jaded, cynical prisoner, you know, kind of sitting in the dark corner of the, of the prison. People that, the prison people bring the food, the food tray to him, and he just kicks it off and, you know, across the floor. Get away from me. But he's not. Look at, look at what he does. He, he sees that the men in the prison are, are a little upset, right? I mean, they're in prison after all. They're upset. And, this, and, and he goes to him. He says, hey, guys, why are you downcast? Why are you guys so down in the dumps? Let's, let's turn those frowns upside down, guys. But the question is, how, how, can, a, how can a man who emerges from this prison, Joseph, 10 years, decade plus, he's been there. How can he have such care in his soul? How can he do that? Especially after all the suffering that he's experienced and all the abuse that he's experienced by his brothers and and his slave master's wife. He comes out with a soft and caring heart. How is that possible? How does a person endure those circumstances and come out loving others, caring about others, worrying about the prisoners that are in your presence that are a little bit down? How does that happen? Look at, look at verse 21. It's the first verse printed in your order. Chapter 39, verse 21. It says, The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And this is the answer. Joseph he has the word in the form of the dream. Remember we said the dream. Remember there is no Bible at this point in history. This story of Joseph would be written 400 years later by Moses. So that, this doesn't exist. So God is showing up to people and speaking to them either through an angel of the Lord, through a dream, through a vision. And, Joseph, and, and in fact, and also through providence. And that's happening even more so in the Joseph story. But we'll come back to that. But God has spoken to Joseph in a dream. And the dream was that Joseph would be exalted. That's the promise of God to Joseph. Exaltation. Okay? And, and, and so Joseph flaunted that dream to his brothers. That dream sent him into this horrible path that he's been on. But he's clinging to the dream. And he also has God's presence with him. We talked about that last week. And he has the love of God with him. And he has the grace of God. Right? The, the word favor. Uh, God is showing him his grace and favor. So much so that the prison... The prison uh, head recognizes it just like Potiphar recognized God's blessing on him before and that's how we endure that's how we endure we rest in the word of God his love to us his grace for us and we endure listen to what Paul says Paul suffered incredibly he explains it in 2 Corinthians 11 he talks about the, the flogging and the beating and the stoning. He should have died in, in that instance. Shipwrecks, going hungry. Um, all of these sufferings for Christ's sake. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians. He says, we, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed. We wonder, God, why, are you, why, why am I getting stoned again? Not not. Stoned as in rocks coming his way, right? Why is this happening again? Why am I getting flogged again? Why, he doesn't, 
they're perplexed. They don't understand what God is doing, but they're not driven to despair. They're persecuted, but they're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And he says, verse 10, uh, uh, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul is saying the word of the gospel, Jesus' sufferings and his death are what give us the power to endure our own sufferings. Because we know that if we share in Christ in his death and sufferings, we will also share in his glory, in his resurrected life. So we, we hope. And that's, what, that's how he endures. He rests, just like, just like Joseph, he rests in the word of God. Now, the word of God to us is, is more, is more um, uh, particular and clearer. It's the word of the gospel, right? The death and resurrection of our Lord for us so that we might be followers of Christ and live in his blessings. So how do you weather the storms of life? How do you deal with your ever-changing emotional state? How do you deal with anxiety and the soul ache that pounds you daily? How do you deal with that? You tell your heart of the fixed and faithful love and promises of Christ to you that are yours. That God is with you. His steadfast love is upon you. His grace is with you. And you endure. And that's our claim, week in and week out. By telling our hearts that Christ loves us, that he's for us, we endure. Your hope is as secure as its source. Your hope in this life is as secure as its source. If you place your hope in something that's fleeting and will pass away, that's how secure your hope is. If you place it in God creator who is and was and is to come and will never... It's secure. Your hope is secure. Now, um, and again, this gospel of Christ is telling us that God is using all of his power, all of his wisdom, all of his might, and all of his, his mercy to produce your best life. That's what's coming your way, is your best life. Now, contra Joel Osteen, it, it may not feel like your best life now, at least. But that's what the design is for, to produce your best resurrected in the age to come life. That, that's what God is orchestrating in your life. Listen to, I read this recently from Tim Keller. He says, listen to this, God will either give, you, give us what we ask for in prayer, he'll either give us what we ask for in prayer, or he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if, he, if we knew everything that he knows. If Joseph knew everything that God knows, this incredible life of suffering is the life that Joseph would, pray, would, would, be, would be praying for. Shocking, isn't it? If all of the wisdom of God was, was, was laid out before him in the, in the reality of a resurrected world order, if all of that was, Joseph would say, God would say, is this okay, is this okay with you? And Joseph would say, yeah, I, I think that's the best way. That's, that's what Keller is saying. You see, we're like Joseph in the prison. We, we just can't see outside of the confines of our circumstances. That's what, that's what it means to walk by faith, right? You're hoping in things you've not seen. 
clinging to those things. Right? The, the, Joseph, the, the, the brothers hate and the enslavement and the false accusation of Potiphar's wife and the decade plus imprisonment. God is slowly and steadily perfecting Joseph. So Joseph is being transformed by this experience. But not just that. God is saving a nation. He will save a nation through Joseph. He will save the world's greatest power through Joseph. And not just that. He's going to save the surrounding nations through Joseph. And not just that, he's going to save Joseph's family through this. That the one that the family rejected and cast aside is the one who will bring salvation and reunion to the family. That's all coming for Joseph. It's incredible, the turn of events that's about to happen. And here's the thing, all of it, at the end of it, you can't say anything but this. Glory be to God. God is bringing about his power in, in, all, in the weakness of Joseph. God is he's, he's humbling Joseph, but he's, he's going he's gonna to exalt him, and he's going to bring glory. And there, there will be a, listen to me, there will be a day where all of our suffering, all of our circumstances, all of our difficulties, on the other side of the resurrection, it'll all just come together. And I don't, I don't know how that's going to work. I, I I mean, sometimes there's suffering this past week that hit a pastor that is, I I won't even mention it, but it's incredible suffering. And I I have no idea how we get from that guy's life right now to the resurrection. But the promise is that we will. Remember, again, the gospel. God is using all of his power, all of his wisdom, all of his might, all of his mercy to produce your best life. And the best life for the creation, the best life for all things. Everything's being united in perfection to Christ in a restored way. And Joseph is actually, to some degree, believing that. He's showing resiliency in difficult times. And this is a fruit of Joseph clinging to the word of God, the dream, and recognizing, feeling, and receiving the, the hesed of God, the steadfast love of God and his grace to him. The text is very clear. That is on Joseph. That's how he's surviving in these otherwise incredibly frustrating situation that he's in. That's how it's working for him. And that's how, that's how we do it as well. We root ourselves in the gospel. Joseph is secure in yet another pit. Not only is he secure, but he's actually sowing empathy He's sympathizing with those around him in prison. Now, the new arrivals are not. They're not enduring. They're despairing because they don't have the word. They're despairing without the word of God. They don't have understanding. They don't, and and not to say Joseph doesn't have full understanding, but he he has the hope of of God's goodness toward him. The new arrivals don't. They're, They're despairing. And so they're uneasy. They're anxious. They're downcast. Look look at verse 8. So Joseph says, what's wrong? Hey, fellas, what's wrong? Why are you so downcast? And and look at what they say. Verse 8. We had a dream. And there's no one to interpret it. Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me. Okay. So, So they have a word from God in the form of a dream. God has spoken to them in the dream. Remember, this is, dreams are important for God communicating. They don't have an interpretation. They don't understand what the dream means. 
So they're, they're really, for all practical purposes, they're without the word of God. And Joseph is about to bring it to them, right? Their fate hangs in the balance. Remember, they've been, they're in custody right now. They know that they got like a few days of a sentence while the sentence is being worked out. And then they'll find their, 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 death, their fate, right? And they're very uneasy because their fate hangs in the balance in the prison. And so Joseph, and, and, and let me say this. Aren't we all kind of in the same boat, apart from the word of God, like apart from the faith? We, humanity finds itself in a similar situation. We've got the word of God in the form of general revelation. God's made himself known through what he's made, through what he's created. And we, we have this sense that there is this creator God. We have the law written on our hearts, and we have this sense that maybe, uh, maybe, we do, maybe sometimes we succeed, at least on the surface of obeying the law, but oftentimes we fail to live up to not even God's law, but just the own standard that we have in our own hearts. And so we, and let me tell you, this, I believe, is what produces some of the anxiety in our hearts, this nagging sense that we fall short somehow of this law that we have on our heart, that we don't quite got it together the way we should. And so that's how these men feel and Joseph interprets the dream. Joseph says, and this has been Joseph's gift, right? He has sort of this gift of prophecy. He's, he's actually able, God is, is helping him to discern these dreams. And this is what he does, verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, this is again verse 9 of uh, chapter 40. In my dream was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. You shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. And in verse 14, only remember me. When it is well with you, please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh so that I can get out of here. For I was stolen out of the hand of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing that they should put me here. Okay? Now, so in other words, Joseph says, okay, here's the dream. Good news, cupbearer, you're going to be restored. You're going to be restored to the king, and you're going to be brought into a, a good relationship with him, and you're going to serve him as you once did. Your head will be lifted up again out of this pit. And so Joseph um, says that, but he also says this. He also expresses a lot of vulnerability. He's so confident in, in, this, in, the, in the prophecy. Did you notice that? He says, okay, that's what's going to happen. Now, when this happens in three days, because it will, I'm right here. Please tell the Pharaoh that I'm in here wrongly so I can get out of here. So he's confident in the word of God, but he's also showing some vulnerability, isn't he? Like, help me. I need you. I've helped you. I need help too. And actually, I, I think Joseph is giving us a, a wonderful little template here for personal evangelism. You know, he, he cares. He legitimately cares about these guys. What's wrong? Why are you down? Right? He doesn't view them as like a project. He, he, he legitimately cares, and he, he leads with that. 
And then he shares the word of God with them. This is what the dream means. And then he says this, look, you know, I'm not this guy that has it all together. Like, I'm really in a dire situation here. I need help, and maybe you can help me. Can you help me? Right? Al Dayhoff, uh, evangelism guy, uh, has written uh, about how, you know, too often in evangelism we think apologetics. You know, apologetics, that's how we have to kind of get our shield up and our sword and defend the faith. That Much of evangelism is about defending the attacks of, of, of the modern world or whatever it is. And he says, you know, actually, as he's done evangelism, he says, I'm convincingly uh, or more, more, uh, increasingly convinced that the way to go about evangelism is to lead with our suffering. It's to lead with our suffering. To understand the suffering of others and, and share our own suffering and our own need for Christ. That's what got us into the faith in the first place. And I think he's right. And Joseph's doing that. He's, he's, he's expressing his need. So the cupbearer's dream is a good one. The cupbearer will be restored. Now, the baker, though, he sees all this unfolding, and he thinks, ooh, maybe I'll have a good dream, too. Maybe my, my word is good, too. Joseph, can you tell me? Verse 16. So he said to Joseph, um, tell me the dream. And Joseph said, or he says, I also had this dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for the pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head off of you. That's how the Hebrew reads. And hang you on a tree. You will, your, your body will be impaled on a tree and left for dead. And the birds will come and eat you. That's, that's the dream. See the pun, right? The cupbearer's head will be lifted up and restored. His head will be lifted up and off, um, is what the dream says, and impaled. So, two dreams, two very different words to these men. Oh, and by the way, remember, if you know anything about Egypt, what do you, what do you know about Egypt? They love their graves, their pyramids. Right? They were all, they were, if there's ever been a culture obsessed with burying people, it was the Egyptians. They've got, they still have it. They still have these enormous graves devoted to burial. Pyramids. And, and so this man's he's, his body will be defiled. He's guilty. He's guilty. He's going to suffer the judgment of the Pharaoh, of the king. So we've got two different dreams. Um, let's look at verse 20. Let's see how this actually happens. Verse 20 of chapter 40. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted the dream. So there you have it. Two dreams, two very different words to each of these men. Now, in closing, I want us to think about these two groups because every one of us right here this morning is in, is in the shoes of one of these groups. We're either in the shoes of Joseph or we're in the shoes of the, 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 the kitchen staff in custody, okay? So first, for those of us that find ourselves in the shoes of Joseph, that would mean any person in here that professes faith in Christ and is a Christian, you're in the shoes of Joseph, okay? 
We've received God's good word to us. His promise that we who are made low through sanctification and the sufferings of this world will be exalted with Christ, will be raised to new life, will be united to Christ to rule and reign over all creation. That's the, word of the, that's the promise of the gospel. We'll be exalted. And in the meantime, God loves us. His steadfast love is upon us. He forgives us. He loves us, and he will one day exalt us. That's the promise. But here's the thing. Probably like Joseph, we're nowhere near that point. Nowhere near it. We feel like that is such a remote possibility in our own life, and we wonder how in the world can these promises be true? Joseph is wondering the same thing himself. In fact, it's, it's gotten even more despairing in this passage because you see the last verse that's printed in your order, verse 23. So the chief cupbearer is restored, but, but he didn't remember Joseph. He forgot him. Oh, Joseph's ticket out, and the guy forgot. He forgot to share it with the Pharaoh. But God hasn't forgotten him. God hasn't forgotten Joseph, and God is with him. And he is about to experience an unbelievable turnaround. You know, if you, if you like fling a bow in, through the air, you know, the further the, you pull the bow back, the, the further you lower the bow, what happens to the arrow? The further it flies. Joseph just keeps getting pulled back, pulled back, pulled back, and he's about to go, it's about to have liftoff. He's about to go soar. I mean, what happens to him is incredible. He, he is, in just short order, he is going to be the most, arguably, the most powerful man in the whole world. He will become, essentially, the Pharaoh's prime minister, making all of Pharaoh's decisions, leading the nation of Egypt, right? Um, you, you know, the, in the United Kingdom, the queen, she, you know, she's, she's a symbolic power that she has, right? She's sort of a symbolic power prop. <laughs> the person who's running the country is the prime minister, right? They're the ones making the decisions, making all the money decisions, that's what Joseph is going to be doing. It's incredible. He's a prisoner right now, an outsider. It's an incredible turnaround. You know, another character in the Old Testament that experiences unbelievable suffering is Job. More, more suffering than any other character in the Old Testament, in fact. Job experiences suffering, and, and everybody's trying to figure out what it means. His friends, they've got their theories. And then at the end, towards the end, God speaks. Listen, listen to what he says to Job. Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Did you determine its measurements? Do you know who stretched the measuring line across creation? Were you there when the morning stars shouted for joy and sang together in response to what they saw? Who shut in the doors of the ocean and locked them in place? Who said to the waves, you can come this far, but you can't come any further? Do you have silos that you store your snow and your hail for the days of trouble and war and judgment? Job, do you give the horse his might and his courage? Did he, the horse fearlessly stampedes into enemy, the, the, the riding sword just runs right into it with courage to take on the enemy. Do you give him his courage? Do you give the, the uh, do you give the, the hawks, their circuits, do you direct their circuits? Do you guide the eagle to its nesting place on high? Does the lightning come to you and ask you where it can strike? See, 
God, and that's just a sampling. I mean, it's like four chapters of, of all of God's power over creation. God is saying, if I can orchestrate the inner workings of creation, both big, big and small, I have the wisdom to design and architect your own life and bring about your good. And God has designed a spectacular turn for Joseph. Again, remember what Keller said? God either gives us what we ask for in prayer or gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. Now, you know, I don't, I don't know where you struggle, where difficulty is, what you've been praying, and maybe ways in which God has not answered those prayers. But the promise for those of us in Christ is that the future that we wait is an eternal weight of glory that is so heavy and thick that it makes the sufferings of this present age, he says, not even worth comparing. It's not even worth comparing. It's not, it's like, it's not even a comparison. It's comparing like a, that little cup to the ocean. It's just, there's no comparison. That's what awaits us. That's the promise. Now, if you, so that's, for, that's the word to Christians, right? There's hope. We take, we take comfort seeing Joseph suffer knowing that he's about to be catapulted in a totally different direction. That's our destiny too in the gospel. But for those of you that don't believe in Jesus and are not Christians and, and you're just checking things out and we're so glad you're here, um, I, I want to I say a word to you. What, what we see in this Bible, if you had to boil it down, it's God's plan of rescue for humanity. And what we're seeing in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and it's where God begins this plan of salvation for humanity. And he's working, um, he's working through this little family, and they're going to grow and get bigger, and there's going to be a whole history to them. But it's all going to come to fruition in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you've not received that gospel, if you've never heard that gospel, you're like the kitchen staff in custody. It's kind of where, where we all, which where humanity sits. It's our default position in this world. We're in, we're, we're, we're in, we're the kitchen staff in custody. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, that verse, it's a familiar one to church folk, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a difficult one for us to grasp for the last 100, 200 years-ish, probably more, in intellectual circles and in kind of all different circles. We've tried to kind of get that thing out of the picture. If we could just kind of lower the ceilings, get rid of God, then maybe we could go about our lives. And if you hear the atheists in like the 19th century, they're very honest about that. We want to live our lives, and we don't want to feel guilty about anything. So out with God. So we're living kind of in the fruits of that. Public life is very kind of devoid of, of, of a creator, of God. And so, so that's the world we live in. But even in that world, listen to what Michael Horton says about that. He says this move toward pure eminence, right, life without God, is, is it actually motivated by a secret terror? Are we really kind of trying to get the idea of all fall short of the glory of God and that we have all sinned? Getting that out of the picture, are we trying to secure ourselves against the indictments of our conscience? 
the nagging feeling that we cannot quite put our finger on? In other words, he's saying, don't we all feel like we're trying to earn our keep in creation? That we're trying to validate our existence? And we have this deep sense that we don't measure up? And here's the fruits. Here's the fruits of that deep sense that we don't measure up. Anxiety, self-righteousness, sensitivity to criticism. We have what theologians have described uh, a God-shaped hole in our heart. Our hearts are infinite in their desires, but we don't have the infinite. And so we confuse, and here, apart from God's word to us, apart from revelation, we confuse that desire for the infinite for finite things. So we, we constantly think, well, if I could just get, like, have a big family, or if I could get a nice car, or if I could get a full scholarship, or if I could get the next degree, or if, or if I could get the promotion at work, then my life would be settled. And you find that as people get those things, the most successful people oftentimes are the most miserable. When they finally arrive at like the pinnacle of what they were after, the wheels come off. Why is that? Because they were putting the infinite longings of the human heart, their heart, they were trying to get it to land on finite things. And the finite thing buckled under them. God is, it, it, that's where our hearts belong. They can't land there. And, but here's the problem. We can't get God because of, I think, one of the most important categories of Christian thought, sin. It's not just wrong misdeeds. It is that, but it's also this disease that we have. We have been alienated from God, the Father, because of this sin. So we're just roaming around trying to find the answers, but we can't find them. And so we fret. We find ourselves, humanity, apart from Christ, finds itself in a dungeon worrying about its future sentence before the king, not the king of Egypt, but the king of creation, God Almighty, the king of heaven. Now, in our little story this morning, the cupbearer was innocent and the baker was guilty. But as it relates to us and humanity before their king, creator, God, the verdict is guilty. All of us are guilty. Just like the baker. And that's the reason we're so anxious. We, we, at some level, we know we're guilty. This is, why we, this is why the only story we will watch is a story of redemption. We're guilty. We know we need that. And so we want to see that in stories. Across the board, it's the only story that works. That's why, because we have this deep sense of guilt. You know, Francis Schaeffer Schaeffer said that, um, forget God's law. If you just try to live up to your own morality as you define it, if if we recorded everything you said about the way people should live and we compared that recording of how you think people should live to how you lived your life, you fall short of that standard. Something's wrong with us. Christianity says it's our alienation from our creator. And so here's the gospel. There we are, sitting in the dungeon, awaiting our sentence with this deep anxiety that we've, we've wronged the king of creation. And the gospel says, which dream do you want? It's your pick. You've got the dream of the baker coming. That's your judgment. But you can have the dream of the cupbearer. You can be restored to the king. And you can find salvation. You can be lifted up back to your original standing in, 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 cry, in God before your creator. That option's available to you. 
Christ came to extend mercy and restoration to us. And his death on the cross is him taking our dream upon himself, our fate of judgment and condemnation. He took that upon himself so that we could get his dream, right? His blessing. The blessing that comes from perfect obedience to the creator. So, you know, if, if you don't like the dream you get, pick a different dream. It's available. And watch all of God's power and love come upon you and all of his wisdom and might being exerted for your good, for your best life. That's the promise of the gospel. Now, if, if you're not a Christian, my charge to you is receive the word of the gospel. And if you are a Christian, my charge to you is remember the word of the gospel, just as Joseph is remembering it in these dire circumstances. Let's pray. Father, we don't know the end of the story, just as Joseph doesn't know how in the world he's getting out of this dungeon. In fact, for, for, things, for, for Joseph in this moment, things are especially dire. What he believed to be his ticket out forgot about him. But you didn't. You had not forgotten about him, and you will lift him up. We pray that you would help us to remember that those promises of exaltation are true for us, too, in Christ, that we will be lifted up, united with Jesus to rule and reign with him over all creation, that we will be image bearers of God, steward kings across a new creation. We thank you for those promises. And I pray for those uh, that we would be bolstered in them this morning, but also for those who uh, maybe don't believe in, in, the, in Christianity that find themselves like the prisoners in custody, not knowing what the verdict is before their creator and having this growing suspicion that maybe it's, it's not good. Would you uh, convict them that, that they're right in that sense, that it is guilty? But in Christ, they can find mercy and his righteousness is theirs and they can be declared righteous. Give them your fate and destiny, blessing, because you took theirs. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.